If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations, all at hoyfulproductions.com. Because when I saw the podcast there, I said, wow, they're an hour. That's long. And then then I've been listening through a few and I really like the pace of it because usually it's clipped to what's considered useful content, um, which is nice for a 20-minute talk, but it doesn't give you that ramble sort of feeling, which which I enjoyed listening to. So <laughs> Yeah, there's something more enriching, at least for me, about just hearing a natural conversation evolve. You know, like um, I, I remember growing up listening to or watching like Charlie Rose or, you know, Johnny Carson and uh, all these talk shows. But it was always like you get like 30 seconds from the person and then it's like, well, now we need to go to a commercial and then the person's gone. So that's interesting, right? Because I've heard you reference that before. And to me, they're all new references. So I, I don't know how much background I gave you, but I'm I'm first generation immigrant. So I've been here 20 years, but still first generation. So any throwback reference, I might know from recently, but it's not it's not something I know. I grew up in India, so very different experience growing up. Well, I imagine, but I, I I have to say though that it has to be something kind of awesome about that too, where you're everything is kind of new to you. You're like, what is that? I can discover something new now. It is, it is, and I think it's, it's sort of how I make art. Like I, I, I try to stay in that, um, in that new first, first sort of impression, which is why I work a lot with sketchbooks and stuff because it's very immediate. It it gives me that first impression recording, which I don't know. It's it's really valuable because. Three months later, um, you know something and then you know some some parts of it better. But there's also uh, this idea of losing that like very first fascination with it. That's funny that you you should mention that right now. I was while well, I was waiting and kind of prepping myself. I try to wake my brain up a little bit before we start talking. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard of Linda Berry? Yeah. OK, so I was looking at her book, What It Is. Have you read that uh-huh. book? No, I have not. Oh, you need to read it. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I'm putting it down now. <laughs> um, first of all, I don't know if you've seen any of, any of her books, but they are just like an explosion of life. They're not just words on paper. I mean, everything is a drawing. I, I know of her, but I don't know the books. So they will they will go on my go find list. It's a fantastic book. And I mean, it's... Tell me the name again. What it is. Which okay. Is, which I always confuse in my mind with what is it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's one of those books you have to own physically too it's it's okay it's, yeah it's a i'm a physical book reader i'm a physical book reader doesn't work for me the i mean audible is is useful i i i do that when i'm in a car or something but but paper book i need the back and forth yeah i think for me it, it depends on the book you know if it's a book sure. i love i need it physically if it's just something i'm reading to see if i'm gonna like it yeah, uh-huh. and Kindle is usually where I'll start. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. But I love the feeling of, especially a book I love, going over the shelf and just pulling it and remembering what page something's on and uh-huh, putting uh-huh. Or the in. randomness, right, of opening to a page and finding something on that page for today. Yeah, I remember buying or not, I shouldn't say buying, but getting old books from, you know, like uh, yard sales or something. And it was mm-hmm. always fascinating to me to get a book and somebody had written in it. Because yes. it, that was an extra surprise. You're like, oh, what did this person think? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. You can't really get that so much with Kindles. No. And it's not handwritten. That's another thing I miss when it's not in... It's, it's actually very particular for me. If it's not in script, then it doesn't look handwritten, like longhand. I don't know what you'd call it, script, I guess. Right. Yeah, which is how I learned to write, with a fountain pen and in script. <laughs> yeah, see, I... I miss that culture of handwriting and um, cursive like you're you know the yes cursive that's right there's something something that um i'm going to reference once again i I have have this tendency to reference things when i'm talking to people i'm I'm taking notes down because it's always great (laughs) unfortunately i don't remember where this one came from but um somebody had done a study and they said that handwriting cursive in particular but handwriting in general it stimulates both parts of the brain in a way that no other activity does so mm-hmm. that by not teaching children handwriting and particularly cursive we're actually giving them a detriment of some sort they're they're losing something in the process that their brain isn't developing in the same way as the generations before them yeah and i think i was the last generation to learn cursive probably yeah, that's interesting because I have kids in middle school now and they they touched on cursive, but it will not stay in their life. They didn't learn it in any way in which they will write comfortably in cursive. And that's kind of sad. To me, it's um, really physical, like this idea of things joined because you write in long joined. It's kind of like you think, you don't think in disparate, discrete little things. Your thoughts get strung together. So when I'm thinking and writing, um, I don't know. Cursive, cursive best fits how I think thinking works as a series of, you know, connected ideas. Yeah, and there's, there's a, at a certain point, there's a desired level of difficulty to it as well. You know, like I can find, I, I tend to write now in print, even though uh-huh. I, but I think the reason I tend to print now is because <laughs> as, I don't know if it's, this is a sweeping generalization, but in my experience, men suck at handwriting compared to women. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why that it is. I don't think it's inherent. It's got to be a cultural thing of some sort. But I never liked the look of my cursive writing. So I think at a certain age, I gave up on it because I was embarrassed of it. Interesting. So we did, we, when I went to school in India, it was a very strict thing. You had a class a week for, I think, through fifth and sixth grade, where the class was about handwriting and you had to write in fountain pen to a certain, it's a very strict sort of um, what is considered good handwriting. And you wrote like that. And it's not like my handwriting is like that. But, but having to put, I don't know, those many hours into working with a fountain pen on writing neatly and not smudging it. <laughs> it was it was interesting. I imagine that probably that that probably had something to do with the English influence in India, right? That 
This is the way. Indeed, indeed. Actually, it came from the British civil servant service. The books we use, so it was really a throwback to the Raj and kind of funny. I think a lot of Americans don't even know that in India, you guys write in English. Yeah, I often I still get asked twenty years later uh, about. Um, why my english is good and i always have to say it is it, since i went to school which would be kindergarten it's been first language so yeah yeah there's a weird perception i think well a lack of perception i guess on on american part but i'm i know it's not our only shortcoming on understanding the no. rest of the world <laughs> Oh yeah, but you know, you can always look at cultures and say oh this is a shortcoming, but for everyone I would say there's a bunch you can point to that are like I I could I could talk forever about like of course you can talk about shortcomings, but there's a lot of things I like in how I make art now and what I can do that I consider things you could only do in America. So, you know, for every one of those there's many fantastic things. How old were you when you came over here? Oh gosh, uh 27 I'm 47 now so 20 years ago so you were you were already a full blown adult by the time you came over yes here. yes as an adult I'd studied in India I'd lived in various parts of India and then I'd worked in India I worked in uh, advertising I studied graphic design and then I worked in advertising and then I came over thought I was doing a short little course in uh, digital design because it was you know the start of web stuff and um I met my husband and I did not end up going back. So that's how <laughs> I ended up here. And did you also, once you got over here, decide I'm going to go with paper instead of digital? Or are you still doing digital? So it's, it's, it's been a meandering journey. I mean, I started out as a, when I, I, I always drew as a kid and every birthday present was a box of crayons and a blank sketchbook. And that's all I wanted. And, um, and so when I grew up, I thought of what I, I love to draw. What can I do that's considered work? And so after school, I went to college and the only thing I could think of, I mean, there was always the idea of fine art, but I thought, oh no, I don't know how I'll make a living with that. So I did graphic design, which I like, but don't love. And I worked in it for years. And um, when I actually started working in design, I'd never been, until my first job, I'd never worked on a computer. Yeah, old style, did your... Um, mock-ups and layouts by hand and then got it photographed. It's a very old style. And um, then as I worked over the years, handwork really fell out of it. And somewhere many years later, I realized that I came to this thinking, I I really, my, my passion is drawing and I love to draw. And now there's no drawing or handwork left in what I do. So um, it, I've always sort of kind of drawn over the years, but it sort of fell off when I started working full time. And then I'd say about 10 years back when my kids were little, I, I went back to it as in I went back to it in a little sketchbook that I kept with me everywhere. It, I still worked full time in graphic design then, and it was just a way to do tactile by hand drawing again um, in little bits of my day that I found because I had a two and a four year old. And that, that was, it was a challenge to make art as in I thought of, you know, big art pieces that take forever. Um, but sketchbooks were perfect for what I, I, I really needed to just be a pencil on a paper and making marks and, and they served my purpose perfectly. Do you think that uh, drawing with your children in some way woke that back up inside of you? 
Yeah, you know, I didn't draw with them when they were two and four so much. It was it was really that I was uh, working. And when I was not working, I was so much being a parent to very small children that I needed something in there that was really just for me. So I can't say I started drawing for them. I started drawing in those books for me. So they'd play for an hour in the park or 20 minutes in the park. And I'd, I'd have my book and I'd draw them, the trees, the whatever, just something that, you know, in a moment's notice, I could put away and move on. And it didn't have to be a lengthy project with a lengthy process. So the drawing was always clearly just for me. Um, The interesting sort of side effect is because I I still do that. My, My sketchbooks live everywhere in my bags, all over the house. So I can literally sit down wherever and keep working in a book that's probably sitting right there. And um, because it's so much a part of my life, my kids do draw a lot, but I can't say it's because I teach them. I think it's because it's such a uh, normal, not special thing to do. That's funny that you should say it that way. The reference I made earlier to Linda Berry, she's, mm-hmm. it, she talks a lot about kind of what you're saying about you thought that art was this um, you know, process. And I think that there's a certain at a certain point or a certain age, we all start worrying about kind of like what I was saying about my handwriting. You know, like, am I, uh-huh, am I good? Uh-huh. Does this suck? Um, and that's actually like, she's, she goes into part about that and she talks about, she's like, we start asking our, ourselves those two questions. Is this good? Does it suck? And it's, it's antithetical to what you're talking about. Whereas when you're a kid, you don't think those things, you just draw. And you don't even, the picture and what the picture comes out to be doesn't even matter to you. It's, you know, the process of putting the things on the paper that's completely natural. Sure. And I, I mean, that's, that sounds like what you rediscovered with sketching. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Very much so. In fact, I think the bigger you set yourself up to like have an end goal, at least for me, the harder it is to even even start on it. And and the more likely you are to, I don't know, fail or not get there or be unhappy. Um, and I'm not sure it works like this for everybody, but for me, the like the joy is in the process. And I don't have a very cerebral or, uh, yeah, like a, a a method I can put into words when I'm starting to make a piece, I it, it would be hard to put into words what I want to say. I can say it in line and color. Uh, so it's easier not to like, you know, get stuck with the idea of making something big or having very conceptual work. And, um, and which is why I love, I love the medium of paper. Like often it's a paper and a pen and that's all I'm using. And then it, it can expand to watercolors, all sorts of, all artists love their materials. So I I can grow it to a very big set of materials, but I can also work with very little. And um, yes, there isn't that. um, I love the process. So it's always icing on the cake. If it ends up being uh, something I look at later and like or find meaning in. Uh, But if not, it was 45 minutes of great fun putting pen to paper. So that's sort of how it works for me. And, and it, oddly, it um, makes for more success and more, I think, because it allows for more freedom and it allows for more mistakes and happy accidents because there isn't an end goal and there isn't a big something I must arrive at at the end of it. And I imagine the happy accidents are 
even more important when you're working with water mediums because they are or can be fairly unpredictable. But because of that, you end up with some extraordinary surprises. Yeah. In fact, it's what I like about the medium. I think it's what drew me to the medium, the fact that um, it's to me this idea of um, some mediums will do exactly what you want them to do when you know them. Uh, And for me, watercolors, the beauty of it is that I will never fully know it. It is always a little untamed. And I like playing with that untamed part of it because I feel like it can do things beyond what the trained me can do. So it, it, it's, a, it's, it's really perfect for how I like to work because um, there's pros and cons. The cons is that you often end up with disasters. That's, that's a common part of my practice. A lot of stuff will be disastrous. Um, but, but that sort of playing with it and that allowing for accidents also allows every once in a while for something to appear on the paper that I don't really think I know how to do. And, and that's only part a part of it is me allowing it to happen, but definitely a part of it is like a medium like watercolor. It's it's particularly untamed at best. And I like using it like that. I will use it wet on wet. I will throw stuff on it before it dries. I don't particularly work with the rules of watercolor and how you must work to, you know, avoid blooms and build transparency. It's all lovely to know and it really helps me paint better to know it. Uh, but I don't feel I have to follow it all the time. Yeah, I feel like for me, I'm I'm a big fan of watercolors as well, though I'm nowhere near as good as you are. Um, I think that once you once and something in art becomes too cerebral, you know, where you mm-hmm. where you have it down to like a methodology where you can see all the steps in your head, it kind of loses something. Whereas, um, you know, something like watercolor, like you said, it's always untamed. It doesn't mean you can't get good at it. Because your your art is a testament to that, but there's an intuitiveness to it that is uh, the opposite of you know this. Okay, the, I do this, and then I do this, and then I do this. Um, like for example, one of the things that I find very difficult when I'm working with watercolor because there's a I have a tendency to want to. I don't want to say perfect, but I think that probably is probably the right word. <laughs> but you know when you're when you're on the palette and you're you're thinning out your color a little bit when the colors start mixing and you get some nasty looking colors and it's oh yeah <laughs> and it happens all the time that's that's just watercolor and i think that that forces you into the present where you just have to accept those little things where you're like well my 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 green is a little bit yellow or brown <laughs> <laughs> I must send you a picture of my palette because my green is always yellow. <laughs> there is, I do not clean my brush before I redip. Uh, but when I teach, actually, I often tell people this and they find it kind of funny. I say, embrace the mud. When I mix colors in my palette, and especially since I work on location in a little palette, you don't have a lot of mixing space. You don't have this beautiful setup where, you know, you can spread out and have a zillion water containers. You're working small. It's sort of guerrilla painting. Um, you end up at some point with mud in your palette. It's your red, yellow, and blue mixed up there. It looks like mud. And in at some point, you have to learn to love that mud, play with it, and push it warm and cool and get things out of it. And, and you can. You can. I do agree, though. You have to. You have to. I think by nature, I can easily give, give up on perfection and um, neatness. It doesn't. It, it, those 
don't come to me naturally. So, so it kind of helps me work with watercolor in that I don't need that sort of neatness and precision. But I, I can see how if you need it, that's a hard one to overcome. Yeah, and I always look at, um, you know, like for example, we'll, we'll use your art or somebody like um, Wendy McNaughton. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Yes, I'm very familiar with your, her work. Your art reminds me of hers very much, um, which I, I'm a huge fan of hers as well. Um, oh, that's that's lovely of you to say. Yes, huge fan. She also does uh, something I love, which is this idea of visual reportage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's words and pictures, and it's the idea of telling everyday stories, um, which which is actually something. I'm, I would say I'm, I feel like I'm more about visual reportage than just paintings or pictures. I, I love the idea of a story on a page. Yeah, I noticed that in your, the transition in your blog, and I think the last, maybe more than five, like maybe the last 10 entries, you're slowly transitioning to working the words and the pictures together more. And I love that style. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with you. Samantha Dean Baker? Yes. She's fantastic as well at that, mixing those two together. Yes, and she has this very successful book right now that is quite an influential book. And I'm I'm loving that it's getting uh, a lot of like artists like that, I think, and art like that. Um, what's really valuable about it is that I think it's breaking those um, barriers down to this sort of art as rarefied, conceptual, in galleries and, you know, out of everyday people's hands kind of thing. Um, I've never liked that hierarchy. I find it a little bit uncomfortable and kind of sad because um, it, it takes away the everyday person's ability to call them, call what they do art. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it takes it further from like we were talking about from that childhood innate ability to just put down pictures. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've always found... I've read a very, sorry, a very, very interesting study which said that uh, all kids draw well until about the age of eight. Uh, and it's something developmental that kicks in where you want, you start looking at what you put on a page and uh, checking if it matches up to reality. And and that's sort of when like it helps to handhold with a kid and talk to them about what art is about and making art for fun because that's when they stop making art because they love the process and start like thinking of it as not good enough, which is so sad because kids' pictures are so fresh. Oh, they're so, you know, like for example, for some reason I thought of the idea of a kid drawing a helicopter. It rarely ever looks like a helicopter, but always looks like something exciting. You know, it's like yes, there's there's so much life to it that that we lose at a certain point. I think, mm -hmm. and it is that intellectualization. You know, it's like like you said, it, measuring it up against reality, which I assume to some degree has to do with um, peers as well. You know, like I drew this helicopter. Well, this this person thinks my picture is ugly because it doesn't look like a real helicopter. Sure, sure. Or photography, which is a fantastic art medium, but it's um, so ubiquitous that somehow um, we've assumed that this one art form or this one way of capturing visuals is uh, is the only only way to capture um, 
I don't know, reality. Because, you know, referring back to how you talked about the kid and the helicopter, while it may not be photography perfect, it probably is very true to what a kid, that particular kid, finds exciting about a helicopter. So it may just leave out the parts that have nothing to do with what excites the kids. And and there's, uh, I don't know, I think it's up for debate. What is a greater truth, a photograph or you know, highlighting what you see in something. And and I like that about sketching because um, I'm not particularly a realistic sketcher, but I always feel I have to, like a successful sketch is not so much one that's um, academically great or uses a medium well, but one that when I look back to, um, it captures that moment for me or that conversation or the light that day or that color. So you know, if it captured what struck me as an individual, as opposed to, I don't know, a hundred picture postcards of something, um, then it's a successful piece and not so much about matching up to photographic reality because why why make a sketch if I can buy a postcard? Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's a fantastic point. And, you know, we think of art, I don't even know how we think of art. It's It's like this grandiose thing, but in reality, taken down to its core it's just the life through your lens you know like um van gogh this isn't the way that uh-huh. he saw the field with crows i mean it's not what he literally saw but it's what he saw in his head you know it's it's filtered yes, through it's probably what he felt yeah what he felt back there in the field yeah and that's far more I important agree. right who cares what well it's important like. because that's one man's personal view as opposed to any old field because who pays millions for field a field with crows if it's just another field with crows and yeah when you see it through his eyes you're seeing something that you couldn't have seen any other way and this isn't of course in any way to disparage photography because i love photography but but it's something completely different and the best photographers are able to capture light and angles in a way that makes something look different than sure sure they bring that um in a way they bring painting to photography you know they they make it look different it's you know this isn't exactly the way that you would stumble across this i found the right angle and i made sure this wasn't in frame and this was and uh it it's really that idea of filtering things through perception that matters you know not this perfection some of the best photographers I see photos that people would say, well, this part's blurry. Like, yeah, that's how they wanted it. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. No, no, no. I agree that in good photography, there you always see it through a photographer's point of view and lens. I think that photography as in, you know, the way most of us are taking photographs to remember something on our phones, like I take a photograph of uh, where I park my car in a parking garage so I remember (laughs) that's become a substitute for photography the art and we confuse the two this sort of use of it as very ordinary note taking but it captures something very real is uh, is very different like you say from a point of view Um, but but when you were talking about photography I thought of this thing I often think about that's that I always find very uh, funny, which is when um, when we see a beautiful photograph, we often say, oh, it's gorgeous. It's like a painting. And uh, people often look at a painting, especially a realistic one, and say, oh, it's so beautiful. I 
mistook it for a photograph, which which I always find really funny that we have to use this, you know, the other uh, to um, to validate how great something is. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point, actually. I, you know, I, I think about, you know, when you say it looks like a painting, you're saying, oh, it's very artistic, it's well done. I'm not sure what we're saying in the other way where it looks like a photograph, you know. I guess it, maybe it goes back. I guess we're saying it's realistic. I guess we're saying that we brought something to the medium that we don't expect in that medium, which which is lovely. But uh, but in both instances, it's one kind of thing you can bring to a medium. As in, in photography, you can... Not all great photographs are painterly. They may be very realistic. I'm thinking of like reportage and war photographs. Often They're not painterly, but they're great photographs. Um, while the other way applies to not all paintings are great only because they're realistic. They may be, uh, they may capture moods, they may capture light, they may capture feelings. So I think, I think it, there's a valid point in comparing one to the other, but it's, I think it's important to remember that's only one way for an art to be good. Yeah, I think like, for example, my family, the family I, I grew up around, their perception of art was um it's more it, the more realistic it is the better it is you know so like they mm-hmm. the, it's their generation too so like norman rockwell and um yes. of course like renaissance art and stuff like that they had no place for modern art um whereas i was probably the first person in my family to you know be fascinated by van gogh and picasso or uh de kooning all these crazy um wild artists that they didn't they didn't get and uh, there's there's a certain perception, I think, for general public, I, maybe the previous generation, I can't really speak for now, but that art had to be realistic. And I think it's because so many times in dictionaries, books, and stuff like that, what used to be hand-drawn was replaced with photographs. So that connection between art and photograph was kind of like laid out for them. Like, oh, this replaces mm-hmm. this now. Yeah. But I think it's particularly important in the here and now because it's true. uh, There's very little illustration that I think it's often sad that's in books um, because it's possible to get, there's a much more efficient medium for capturing things. Um, But um, yeah, I think, I think that idea that um, drawing, painting, illustration is all the same thing and sometimes illustration as it was used to you know show something um that you didn't have a photograph in a book is is quite different from the idea of a painting especially in a time where i could google an image or something that i don't know about i don't need a drawing to do that for me to to capture that trust that reality i you know drawing and painting have a different purpose now because i don't always need them to inform me about what something looks like i do miss that art style of those dictionary illustrations though those pen and ink drawings oh my god i love those (laughs) it's a special skill i I spent some time actually trying to learn that that style of drawing and it's just so it's a rigorous it's a rigorous skill it's definitely more on the cerebral end of art but i love sure i love that you know yeah like maybe no, it's beautiful, but I, I, I think even that which looks like reality to us, um, I think it's more than reality because while it must be very, 
particular to say you're drawing a rat and you have to be, it must have the proportions of a rat, but you don't draw every piece of fur on it because when it's going to be a little illustration, you have to decide, say, the snout, the shape of the body and the long tail is what makes it a rat. And then you have to choose those elements. So I know it often looks like reality, like even hyper-realistic work, but I think it's the artist still has to put in a point of view. I want to show you every hair on this mouse and then then you get that hyper realistic feeling and and it's different from photography it is it is still a point of view and and a very decided you know choice to make yeah i don't think anybody would say that chuck close's art is not art even though it is yes. quote unquote hyper realistic you know like mm-hmm. there's so much that he every choice that you know every blotch he makes on that is a choice that's probably different than the actual reality Sure. I, I I don't even understand how, how he makes those paintings. <laughs> They're kind of mind-blowing, aren't they? <laughs> They're pretty amazing. Yeah, but, but they, they certainly make you feel a certain way. If Even if the only thing you come away with is that's uncomfortable. Yeah. They, I'm sure there's an intent to like make you feel like that sometimes, um, which, is, which is very interesting to do with art. Yeah, there's a strange level of... Um, over intimacy with his paintings you know because they're so huge and they're so close to the person's face that yeah you're right it does make you feel a little uncomfortable doesn't it Mm -hmm. you want to step back you want that to all merge into this idea of a face as you see it and you feel if i step back enough it will it will just become a face and then i can deal with it and i think that's interesting to make somebody like force somebody into somebody else's face with your paintings. It's an interesting thing to do. Yeah, that's an interesting way of of doing art too. Whereas, you know, there's there's a different side of art where it is art forces you to stretch the boundaries of reality as well. Um, mm-hmm. I remember in high school we took a history of art class, and we st- when we went through modern art, I don't remember the piece, but somebody had built a metal wall. It's like an arced metal wall mm-hmm. in the middle of a park. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was it. There was nothing to it. It's just a curved piece of metal. And I remember, you know, we're young. We're like, what is, what, how is this art? And she says, yeah. it forces people to, the teacher said, it forces people to encounter it. Now, instead of being able to yeah. walk through there, now they have to walk around it. And that, sure. And that's like the most primitive form of that. But I think that there's there's something important in that too. You know, it's like, I've changed I've changed the dynamics of this space and then that is my art for today. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting we've like ended up talking about sort of this more conceptual abstract idea of art because I it to me that's so different from what I make. When I make art, I don't I don't think I mean I like to look at other people's art and think about these things, but when I make it, I I'm I draw from I draw from where I am. Uh, I am rarely making up stuff. Um and um, I don't consider it very conceptual at all. I draw, I draw to draw where I am, and I draw to be where I am. Uh, I draw to be very present where I am. Yeah, I would say <laughs> if that makes sense. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say also though that there's there's an abstract element in the fact that you're gesture drawing? You know, you're not um, you're not sketching out the exact every angle. You, you know, a lot of your lines are connected instead of you know broken sure. into many strokes. I think that brings some yeah. of the abstract into it 
Um, I, th- I think that's maybe why I find that style of art so fascinating is because I think there's a collision of those two things. This is what I'm seeing, but it's also going back to the phrase we've been saying over and over again. It's also my perception. You know, it's, it's interesting. Interesting. To me, gesture drawing is what I do because it works best with, um, with capturing immediacy. And uh, for me, I'm I'm very in in all my art. I'm I have like a few things that it's whatever subject, but a few things that run in common is um, I make art um, in in a big part to be like I said present where I am and um, sort of as a way to see where I am and what is around me um, with very fresh eyes. Somehow, drawing it makes even the most mundane stuff very fresh. Um, but another thing that really fascinates me, and I think that's what you're referring to with the gesture drawing, uh, is the idea that I use a still two-dimensional medium, a paper, to capture the idea of um, of movement and life. And they, they're almost not a good medium fit, the idea of one still image on a flat surface to capture the moving world, this this world that doesn't stay still, which is, I, I'm fascinated by that juxtaposition. And to me, gesture drawing, um, because you make the strokes so quickly, because they're uh, fluid and full of movement, they sort of bridge those two worlds for me. They They make the drawing on the paper by being imperfect and being loose, they keep it very alive. Do you find that, you know, you talked about it keeping you in the present. Do you find that in a way that it's kind of meditative? You know, it's like a meditation for you? I, in the process, I can't tell you how I feel feel or think, but when to draw, to have drawn for a couple of hours, um, I don't meditate myself, but from what people tell me it gives them and what it does to their day and how it makes them feel, I feel very similar to come out of drawing. When um, I don't always draw in that sort of really focused meditative way. Sometimes I'll be chatting and drawing, sometimes there'll be. But when most successful drawings happen in a sort of meditative state, I can be in the busiest of places, but at some point... Um, in the drawing, when I really get focused, um, the world sort of shuts off around you. You can hear all the noise, you can see all the movement, but you are in a zone. So I, I guess it is meditative like that. Yeah, I think they refer to that as the flow state. And I, I, I guess so. I guess so. So, so I know these terms from. I always think one day I should learn meditation, so I know if it's the exact parallel. But maybe I'm, I'm doing very similar with my art because when I need to de-stress, or when I've been, say, teaching for a long time, or when I've been working on an illustration assignment for a long time, which is for a client and not my own art, and I need a break, then I will uh, go sketch. But it must be sketching for myself, and and that sort of brings me back and my day is all good and focused again so yeah i think i I guess flow state is a good way to put it do you think that when like for example i noticed that you've been blogging for six years i think your earliest entry Uh was 2012 um do you do you think that when you started sharing it publicly um you can also include social media in this too do you feel like that in any way altered your relationship with the art? Hmm. 
So it's been like many things, a journey, what blogging has come to become for me. Because um, when I started in the very beginning, uh, so that's six years ago, I'd been drawing for a few years, but I found I wasn't drawing regularly. And my blog had one purpose, um, to keep me accountable to myself. It, I, I blogged, where it's, it's sort of a place to throw down everything. I use that and Flickr. And those are the places my art ended up. And if I looked online and there wasn't a post in two weeks, it means I probably hadn't done a drawing in two weeks. So, so it started out as, a, you know, just to be accountable to myself because I, I did want to draw regularly. And uh, sort of as a side effect, it people ended up following the blog and talking up and, you know, saying they learned from it. Um, I still try to keep it to where blogging is mostly for me because I, like you said, I, I, I would not want to have the fact that it is public change what I do. So I, I don't particularly have tutorials and stuff like that. I, I write, it's, you know, it's a sort of string of consciousness thought about what, what the drawings on the page are about. Um, but I like the fact that it helps other people and, and people learn from it. And I do teach now and stuff like that. But I, I, I work actually quite hard to not um, muddy the two because I, I don't like the idea of because it is public, it changes what I do. Um, I do get a ran, random comments once in a while because I, I don't build partitions too. Um, I haven't uh, blogged my figure sketches in a while, but I, I do life study all the time. And so I'll have nude figure sketches on there on the same blog too. And not everybody likes that, but um, I like to think the blog is primarily for me. So all aspects of my art end up there, including um, some art that's um, kind of political. Like I, I, a lot of my visual reportage, I will do the women, I will follow and sketch the women's march every year. Um, I sketched and did interviews at the climate change uh, symposium up in this in San Francisco, and uh, all that makes it on my blog. And I just like it all to be there. It's it's one package because it's for me. Yeah, I've actually found your blog really refreshing because I feel like, um, and this could just be, I'm I'm 41, just so you know. So when I'm mentioning my age all the time, um, it could just be my age and the time that I grew up with the internet, um, blogging was exactly what you're talking about. It was just something personal. It was, it, you know, log. That's where the, the long mm -hmm. part of blog yes. comes. It's just me. It's like a journal. Mm -hmm. And uh, somewhere along the line, we got, you know, um, the New York Times and all of these bigger sure. places sure. doing things online. And they started using the blog. And then all of a sudden everybody's blog had to be this professional um, manicured article and you had to have this specific type of content. Whereas really blogs were something that was kind of, it depended on the person. It was something very personal. You know, like you, like you said, all these things mixing together. Why are they mixing together? Because the blog is you. It's what you want it to sure. be. And I missed that rawness and, and, uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and to some degree imperfection, you know, like um, a blog should just be, I sat down and I wrote these real quick and this is what I thought. Not like I toiled over this for, you know, two weeks to make sure I had every sentence exactly <laughs> sure. perfect. Sure. And I feel... I've, I 
Yes, yes. And I, and I think for me, a part of that comes from um, a very early decision that this sort of art making, I think I mentioned before, I, I worked for years in graphic design and in advertising. So that's a very different form of art. And you often build brands and you decide what fits brand image. So I'm very aware of that. And I, I still do some of that for work. I do freelance illustration. So I understand the idea of a drawing or something being on brand. And when I did my blog, I I very much partitioned off that side of my brand because drawing for me was not about brand building. So so like you said, it's all of me. And and common advice I often get would be to not mix, say, my life drawing with my political drawing with my just my my flowers and fruit and my kid drawings and my sketchbooking all in one space because the tendency for people to do, tell you is that you will lose people from doing that because every little bit of this is outside somebody's comfort zone and you lose them. And I think that's where this idea of my reminding myself what my blog is about first is really important. Um, it is first everything I make and first a way for me to keep on track with what I do. Um, I've also found over the years, and I'm, I can't say I started with this thought in mind, but um, I think best, I always think my first language is lines and color and marks on a page. Um, but there is something to then putting that down into words that helps me think better about work I do. I don't think first and then make art, but I often make art first. And then because I'm blogging it, I need to put some of it in words, which I have a hard time explaining why, but it is a useful thing to do. That's the interesting thing you said about losing people too. There somehow has become this and I, th- I think this is probably, there's a lot of very positive things that have come from social media, you know, the accessibility um, for artists in particular. Mm-hmm. But I think this is one of the detriments is this idea that we're supposed to be universally um, accessible or universally approachable. You know, that, that everybody, if, you, if you're doing well at social media, then everybody likes what you're posting. And I, I, sure. I think that's antithetical yeah. to art itself, isn't it? That you, you can't yeah. make art without or, or, or also that you're this one, one faceted person. I mean, there might be people who have a very distinct, narrow style and that's what they do. I, I, I can imagine there's people out there, but I'd say a vast majority of us might have a core strength, but we're dabblers. We have random interests. And and I don't know, to me, it's not a real person until you have at least a few facets. I, I wouldn't say I share everything on the blog. There, there, I, I do believe there is something like oversharing in <laughs> in something like a blog. But but on the other hand, I, I don't want to self-censure and leave parts of, you know, myself um, off the table because that's very much a part of the me that does visual art. And that must end up on the blog. Otherwise, I would look at it and find it sort of missing a facet. There's become some weird idea that uh, we want to, we want our artists and, you know, uh, actors get this a lot, we want our creators to be, to believe what we believe or, you know, like the moment we find out that they believe something, 
even if it's maybe something that we don't necessarily agree with, the moment we find that out, now we don't like them anymore. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's kind of sad, you know, because I can think, you know, look back to Picasso or something like that. I don't necessarily know what he believed, but I guarantee you he had political, political opinions, especially growing up in Spain. Um, so I, I don't know where we change that. I think it has something to do with this kind of this idea of going back to the phrase you used earlier too, the comfort zone. People don't like to be taken out of their comfort zone anymore. We've allowed these kind of content silos where I can see exactly what I want, only what I want, when I want. Therefore, when you say something that I don't necessarily agree with, I don't like that. And therefore, I'm entitled to not feel that discomfort. And it's, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, I think it's also confused this um, sort of online space because say I have somebody sign up for my blog and then they don't like something that ended up in their inbox. They don't like a posting. They they feel they're really angry. I sent them to them, you know, sent this content to them. Um, but but it's interesting to me because when you you probably sign up because of a part of my art you love. And then you get the everything. So, so it it does. I I think it has something to do with how confused these spaces online are, where we, um, I don't know, we signed up for everything, and we probably didn't know it. And you do get some random stuff you are not fond of with that. Um, it, it's an interesting way to live because. I don't know. You, we're getting bits of people in blog posts and we think we know them and then we get parts we don't like. It, it, I guess maybe it's that confusion of people with brands. You know, sure. Now all of a sudden everybody is a brand. So therefore the brand has to be um, within a certain window for us. Um, one of my previous guests, um, my friend Colin, he's in this band called Circus Survive. And they had a bit of difficulty with their new album because. Um, some of the songs they have meanings you know all songs have meanings but they have political meanings and when they expressed what some of those political meanings were people didn't mm-hmm. like it and and I, I i thought that what colin's response when he he said something to someone and i happened to see it and he said why is it offensive to believe that we wrote this song with an intended meaning and uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I, I think that that's that's something that we're We've forgotten, perhaps, and then maybe we're falling ourselves back into is realizing that it's okay for people to believe things, and it's okay that we don't agree with all of them, and that that's sure. that's how we live in this world. And if any place that's going to happen, it has to happen in art first. Sure, sure. There's also this this thing I hear repeated over and over about leaving politics out of it, and I always think, really, it's it's just it's it's such a big deal in many people's lives and you don't have to agree with somebody, but why do they have to leave it out of it if they feel strongly about it? I mean, you don't have a problem with me painting a beautiful red rose when I feel strongly about the red rose, but you have a problem with me sketching the women's march because you don't believe in what it stands for. It's it's kind of odd what we decide is okay and not okay. And politics seems to fall in the very not okay more and more. And I think I, I can't remember where I heard this conversation. Someone was talking about this on a podcast. And they brought an interesting perspective into it that I hadn't considered. But they talked about the idea of when we're posting, we're broadcasting. 
And for some people, um, they perceive when 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 someone is putting forth a political opinion that they're taking advantage of the medium. You know, like for them, I guess it, it's mm-hmm. it's offensive that you know I'm here for the roses, and now I have to see this. I don't believe in feminism, sure. and it's like, but that's that's the world. You know, like I go to Starbucks, I can overhear conversations I don't agree with all the time. (laughs) Sure. And you know, it's part of, uh, I don't know, it's part of the surprise of the world. It it would be so boring if you decided that I am in the world for the red roses and all you get every day is a red rose. Uh, And it's kind of like that. You generally, we do, most of us do decide sort of the sort of world we want to live in. But if once in a while the red rose gives you, I don't know, a sketch of a dirty alley back somewhere in South Asia, um, it's interesting to consider that this person likes red roses and little alleys somewhere in the world. It's not, it doesn't terribly shatter your world to see more than one thing. I think, you know, it's it's kind of important to talk about this stuff too, especially with the technology that's coming out now, you know, like we have headphones and then now we're going to have, you know, these goggles. So if we don't learn to open ourselves to things outside of these, you know, little bubbles of, you know, like the red rose bubble that we've been referring to, mm-hmm. then we're creating a technology where we can make a world where all we see is that one thing and we can literally close out the rest of the world. and. If we don't learn this before that happens, I, I don't know. It's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. And we've talked about it before. And just from the, of, of course, it closes us down. But just from the point of view of being surprised in your life, if, if, you, if you get to exactly curate what you will see every day, then where's the surprise? Yeah, I mean, or, or you're closing down avenues for being surprised. Because I can only surprise you this much with roses. Yeah, I think there's like... For a while, I would go to Starbucks and I would try to get writing done and I'd have my headphones in and I'd play the playlist that I made. And at a certain point, I stopped being able to write. And I didn't know, you know, like, what, you know, what is it? You know, I'm doing all the things that I do. You know, I mean, this is my writing playlist, quote unquote. And then one day, I I think my, I had my AirPods and I think the batteries died. And so I had to okay. take out the AirPods and you know, now I'm subjected to the Starbucks music, whatever playlist they decide they want to. And I have to hear this person over here coughing and I have to hear this person talking. And what happened is I started writing. It's like mm-hmm. something about being forced to actually be there and to hear sure, what I was hearing sure. opened up the avenue that I had closed off. So I think not only do we close off other people, but we close off parts of ourselves when we, when we, curate too much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I see a place for it you know on a day you know you need that focus music to bring you there it's lovely but there's also something to the idea of like the soundtrack that goes with the starbucks you're working in you know that chatter and that random conversation and that gossip at the next table is is the realistic soundtrack of where you are and sometimes it helps to stay in that very real place where the audio and the the visuals match up to be able to work. It particularly works like that for me. Like if I if I run 
I, I will sometimes run around my block and I can't, I don't often listen to music because to me it's odd to not hear the thump of feet on the ground when you're running. So I'm very literal like that. The soundtrack, the the visuals, they really need to match up for me to be very present. Well, I think that there's also that going back to way at the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about happy accidents, they don't just happen on the page that, you know, like the overheard conversation, the dog barking, there's... um. Mm-hmm. Not even just in reference to art, but just in being a human being, those things trigger something inside of us. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. maybe that dog, obviously, you hear the dog bark, and then your brain goes off in a direction that it wouldn't have gone had you not heard that dog bark. You know, maybe you're thinking about your childhood all of a sudden and you remember a memory, yeah. and those are natural. And it's because of those interruptions, it's because of those unplanned things sure. that our brain thrives. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess the the common idea with what we were talking about with watercolors before is this idea of what does it take to allow for those accidents or those happy stances or whatever you're going to call it. But but I think you have to do the part of allowing for it, and that it doesn't make sure it'll happen, but it definitely increases the chances of it happening. I feel like um, when I started. When I started this production company, I, I chose the name Holy Fool because I wanted to focus mm-hmm. on questions. Do you think that like because you know we have all of this access to information to us at all times and because um, there's so much science, so we've figured out a lot of things that we've become overly obsessed with the answers instead of everything else? That's a good thought. I, I, I do in general agree with that. This also this idea, I think, from information online of there being a correct answer as opposed to a lot of answers or or sometimes a question being about just something to think about. You know, it, I think it's very much like the process of drawing. Often you put a mark on a page and then, at least for me, I will wander from that mark. I don't have a composition in mind. I start at something that interests me. And then I keep going on a page. Uh, sometimes I discover something. And sometimes it was just a journey, a line that went for a walk across the page. And, and I think you're, you're talking about very something very similar with this idea of questions and not answers. Because if, if a question is a starting point to wonder, then, then the wondering in itself is what's valuable, not so much where you end up. And I fear that when we when we become too obsessed with answers, that we start um, categorizing everything. You know, mm-hmm. this is good art. This is bad art. This is a good person. This is a bad person. This is a good school. This is a bad school. Everything gets bucketed off into usually just good and bad. And it, yeah, and there's also not the process, and the process often takes you off into, you know, little side streets of whatever you're thinking about or wondering about that me like end up with a third answer a fourth or not not one from your yes no list and it is true because it's it's so right or wrong yes or no uh yeah or, or so fact led or like you said so answer led yeah it's like these um, assumptive uh, assumptive facts sometimes they're not even facts you know we just assume something's true um what i like well, for example one of the things in, in one of your blogs that i found really interesting. I had this perception of, of what the polls were like, and you worked the polls. And one of your quotes was, people bring their best selves to the polls. 
And I don't know why. I think mm-hmm. in my mind, I imagine people going to the polls angry <laughs> and, and in bad moods. You know, I would have assumed so if because political talk and political climate is so angry. Um, this was only the second time I worked the polls. I did the first ones for the presidential election two years back. And I thought I was going to see what I'd seen for months in the media at the polls. But people are so lovely. And I am so happy to be surprised like that because otherwise to me, everything around politics is angry. But it's it's amazing when people come there. Um, you could not guess at how they voted. I don't think so. I There's so many people. They, they're just generally nice. You get the occasional crabby person, but for the most part, just the percentage of people that are really nice and will stop and say thank you or randomly bring like a box of cookies and leave it there. It's happened both times I've worked. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's hard for me to say what brings this out when I think of all politics as um, angry. I think that um, it's that manicure. That's that's exactly what's being curated and presented to us. And, you know, the, we somebody wants people to feel that way. You know, there's the. I agree. I think the difference actually is exactly what you're saying in that my news and my idea of politics before I went to that polling station to work is all presented through the lens of somebody, the news, the media, the something. I'm getting it secondhand. And my only firsthand political experience is when I work that day at the polls. And there's such a marked difference between the two. And I, I think it's, it's something to think about, this idea of like s- reaching for a first-hand experience. Because I, I hadn't thought of that till you said it, that everything else is a second-hand experience to me. It has been presented to me. I have not been at those events. It's, it's kind of like the ability for people on social media to be jerks. You know, Mm -hmm. because it's not a real person in front of them. But if you were actually sitting in front of the person, you probably wouldn't say that. And sure. And we've somehow the news has become like that, too, where it's it's in a way dehumanized. Um, And not to mention the fact that um, for both sides of the political spectrum, anger is so hot right now. It's so popular right now. Sure. Yeah, actually, like talking about those two political, those two uh, posts about working the polls. Um, the first one I did two years back was particularly uh, educational to me because I, there was some, so it's pretty clear that wasn't the kind of election I hoped we'd have. But um, it was, I came home the next morning with something to really wonder about in a good way about the the political process, which is, which is quite amazing to be able to take away on the day after you're really unhappy with an election result. There was something still quite fantastic about the process. Um, and I think that gets lost in a second, second, um, you know, a secondhand view or something. You already get somebody's view of something. So you miss the nuggets of good you could have found in something. Yeah, I would, I would assume that most people didn't have the experience that you had in the sense that most people looking at it online or maybe even watching it on television, just either if they were on the right, they were super excited. Mm-hmm. And if they were on the left, they, yes. they were super disappointed. It was a binary thing. They didn't have the complexity mm-hmm. and the nuance that you were able to experience. And sure, that I think that that's probably at the core of what a lot of our political issues are, is we've lost nuance. 
ஆன்சர்ஸ் i have or not not even questions but things that help me um like i don't know if i sent you the link to my other blog where i've been drawing vintage signs around mm-hmm. san jose um and um it it it's also been its own journey but uh where it started out is very different from where it is now uh so i've mentioned i'm first generation immigrant and now live here and grew up in india and so for me um i have come to like and be fond of san jose but i can't say it was an easy city to um wrap my head head around or like it like it doesn't have the easy charm of say a new york or a san francisco and i always felt i don't have a personal connection to the city um and i think that's because i've only known it in its post silicon valley sort of avatar and um so because i draw things i see around me i started drawing these odd little signs i saw all around the city which clearly didn't belong in in the tech sort of version of silicon valley and and that grew into an obsession and i kept drawing signs and it, and now it's grown to something where i'm working with um a local organization preservation action council working on uh, preservation of these signs but but it started as a really personal way to find a connection in the city to find like a personal connection to the history of the city so i i think there's always that idea of if you can if you can find something personal and for me it was finding uh, these roots of the city before it was um tech city um you make a personal connection and you see something quite different from this broad picture from just looking at it like everybody looks at it i, I don't know if that makes sense but that's that's sort of how i come to what i draw or what i record um it's always it's always for making a personal connection because it somehow um answers questions that i can't put in words that's in- interesting you just made a connection for me in my head to something um there's i can't remember who said it i i want to say it was woody allen but i could be wrong but the idea of the difference between comedy and tragedy um is history and for example if i oh. a man is standing on a street with a nice suit on and a car drives by and splashes a puddle all over him it's comedy mm-hmm. if you find out that he's about to lose his home and he's on his way to a job interview that he needs desperately and that's his only suit out tragedy. Uh-huh. Sure. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that one. And that I think that's that's kind of uh, something we need to apply to people more often is realize that you know, we're seeing this one little bubble or one little pocket of a person, but there's there's mm-hmm. a there's a history and a story like the city, you know, like once you start finding those vintage signs in people now you can start making those connections with okay so maybe they don't believe what i believe but they're a human being and they still maybe they're sure. still good people too and sure. we've lost that it, it is about stories isn't it i th- i think that's what's often missing stories 
because because when you have a story, there's a connection, and and when you have a story that's more than a single visual or a single uh, political opinion or whatever, I think in most people's complex stories, there are multiple points that we can connect to for all the differences we have. But but those those personal stories are hard to find. Like for me with this city, I found that I had to go make the connection. I had to go draw it or I didn't quite feel like I I knew the place well. I didn't feel like I was, you know, in contact with this city for what it is. I always felt like a stranger, a foreigner. Do you think that it feels like home now? I I think it certainly helps to feel like home. I think when you when you are from more than one place, there's always things about another place you miss. Um, but for me, it was important to to find an aspect of this city that I connect to that isn't just this big picture. To me, it's very. Um, I think I came. I I think this was already very much tech Silicon Valley when I came here. And since I don't work in tech, I don't personally connect to that really exciting aspect of what excites so many people that work in high tech. And I, I needed to find a city. I needed to find something older too. Um, may, maybe because I come from an older culture, this idea of something being only from 50 years ago uh, is to me a little too uncomfortably new. I, I, I really need to find stories that go back longer and um, somehow finding these signs and tracing back Silicon Valley to like it's pre-tech era time when it was an agricultural heaven um, has made it a little more of a real place to me because the history is deeper and the history is a history I haven't seen. So it's really rounded out my idea of the place. And it's also connected me with fantastic people in, in all sorts of, in preservation, in, I don't know, people who've lived here a long, long time, longer than I've been here. It's brought very interesting people in my life. That's been a very happy accident and side effect of working on that project. What do you think, like when you look at like a city like Los Angeles, or which I think in some ways is comparable to San Jose, just because of the sprawl and there's no real Mm -hmm. center to it. Um, And then like a city like New York, which is, you know, very... Um, modern. They're both uh-huh. comparable in a way to San Jose, but they're also, like you said, they're very different. What do you think separates all those? Like, what, like you said, there's no easy charm to San Jose. What do you think is is missing? Uh, for me, the city that I find easiest to access of of the cities you mentioned would be New York. Um, and in many ways, I grew up in a very big city. I grew up in um, Mumbai and in India, so it's huge city. Uh, and while the buildings are large and the city is huge, I think the difference to me in New York is that it's a walking city. For the most part, a walking and public transport city, which means you are right next to other human beings when you are traversing the city. You're in the subway, you're on the streets, walking all those intersections, walking fast like the rest of them. You're not, um, to me, the difference between that and LA and San Jose would be that when we feel crowded, we're mostly each person in a little bubble of a car, which which is very isolating and a very different experience from a walking or public transport city. And that's a really good point. And so I think it was three years now, 
I, I got, I, so I work for myself. I don't have to go to an office. Um, uh-huh. but I, I got rid of my car because I didn't need it anymore. And ever since then, I think my experience of the things around me has changed. And I didn't even consider that until you said that, you know, I walk to my Starbucks every day and I know that neighborhoods that I walk through, but the, it's, it's not necessarily that I know them that matters. It's almost just like that process of moving through them. It changes my yes. relationship to them as opposed to um, being in a car can be a lot like watching television. It's just Yes, yes, very much so. Which I think coming back to the signs, that's what um, made a difference for me. I often drove past these signs, but when I need to draw them, I need to find a day that I can make the 20 minutes stop there, get out of my car, stand under that sign, get up close and see it from an angle from which I want to draw it. And that's very different from that. Yes, that drive by, which is like the pan of a camera in video uh, experience of seeing a sign. And so I got to know these things quite intimately, even when I hadn't researched histories and I didn't know anything about them. Just getting up close like that walking, I think it does something like your walk to your Starbucks. You, you are actually on the pavement as opposed to driving by at a much faster speed in a car. It it changes your relationship to, you, you know, those levels, you know, the potholes, you know, where you turn a corner. It is a very different, almost, it's almost like the experience of reading a book versus on a screen. There's something tactile about it or you know it well. Yeah, there's, um, I think that the perception of when you, like, for example, use the signs, um, when you drive past it, there's a perception of that's what it looks like. You know, you have one image of it in your mind when you drive past it. Um, because you're not experiencing all of the little different things, like you said, like the pavement or, you know, it's cold right now while I'm standing here looking at it or something smells mm-hmm. or which makes every experience of it different. Whereas when you drive yes. past it, it's yes. exactly the same every time to you. That That's amazing you say that because I always say that about urban sketching, which is a lot of what I do. It's not only that you are drawing on location, but you are drawing what that looked like and felt like to you that day. And sometimes that may be something external like the weather. Cold, rainy day makes a difference because there's water all over my sketch. I've had sketches washed away by the rain. And sometimes I'm just in a crabby mood and that makes it to the sketch. So it's always a very particular instance instead of being like this generalized image, which, yeah, that it makes a whole lot of difference. There's um, there's a certain experience to the passage of time as well in a place. You know, the longer you mm-hmm. stand there. Um, yes. I, like I find when I'm now that I don't drive um, very often, that when I'm in a car, um, I've taken a lift or something like that, I find myself looking at streets and wondering, I wonder what it's like to walk there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think that ever occurred to me any other time in my life, but it, it made it, <laughs> but it, it sounds like such a silly thing, but it really is about like, what is, you know, like, it's like looking at another person and going, I wonder what it's like to live their life. Sure, sure. And I, and I think it's, it's odd, right? Because unless you walked, you wouldn't know that you're missing that thought of thinking how it is to walk there. 
So, so you often don't know what you're missing. So is it, which I think becomes very hard to explain to people in art. They'll, a lot of people work from a photograph and say, why don't you just work from photographs? Like I often get asked to draw signs that don't exist anymore. And I say, no, 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 I, I like to draw from life. So if it's not there, unfortunately, I don't get to draw it anymore. Um, and it's diff- they, they say, but I have an exact photograph of it. And I really have a hard time explaining what is missing for that in, in that for me or for the way I make art. I mean, there's a lot of people that will make beautiful stuff from photographs. Um, I just have a hard time translating life from a photograph. I need to be there. There's the... Um the famous paintings by Monet of the, I don't know which cathedral it was, but the cathedral and he stood there and he drew it. I think at like six or seven different times a day, just mm-hmm. the lighting was different. And yes. And he did that with the haystacks too, where he, I think he'd have a bunch of canvases and he worked in them at the exact same times every day for 20 minutes of canvas. So he'd switch it 20 minutes later as the light changed. And that's how he built those up because it's, that exact light for those 20 minutes. And and if you've ever tried drawing at like a time, like a sunrise or sunset or something, you'll, you'll realize it. You, you can't get color on the page fast enough to capture that fleeting stuff. It's, it's changed 20 minutes later. It's a different, beautiful, but it's very different. Yeah, I think that that's something maybe people don't even realize about like landscape drawing, like the difficulty of that. Like I need to get this done while it looks like it looks now. Because in 20 minutes, it can mm-hmm. be a different color. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, like at the end of these, I always like to ask the guests, um, what book do you think that I should read next? Is there something that you think that after our conversation, you think that I would enjoy reading? Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm going to have to think of that one. Something to do with our conversation. You've probably read this one, my go-to, and it's 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 a book for anybody that makes anything. It's the sort of book that lives on my desk, and I forget the author's name, but it's a really famous book. It's called Art and Fear. Oh, I think one of my favorite books to have on my desk because when I'm stuck, I open it up, and there's always something useful to get me, give me, you know, that kick in the pants to go do what I gotta do. I think I know which book you're talking about. I remember. So I'm a big rereader. So even if it's a book I've read, I'm going to reread it. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of book that you can pick up and get nuggets out of art and fear. I think it's a uh, Ted Orland. Does that sound right? Ted Orland in a second person. Right. I, I don't have my um, browser open, so I can't search that just now. But you're probably right. Either way, I'll put it in the show notes so that everybody else can read it too. Because I think that okay. that's the fun part about asking people what to read for me. Because hopefully, people out there will pick it up and read it too. Uh-huh. Uh, would you like to tell everybody um, who you are and where they can find you online and plug anything that you'd like to plug? Sure. Um, I'm Suhita Shirodkar. Um, I was born and raised in India and now live in San Jose, California. And I've been drawing since I was a kid, uh, blogging my work, uh, my watercolors and drawings uh, for the last nine years, maybe six. Um and you can find me online um, at sketchaway.wordpress.com. That's S-K-E-T-C-H-A-W-A-Y.wordpress.com. You know, one of the best ways to support a podcast 
is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph letting people know what value you get out of the show. Because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it. So please take the time to rate and review us.